You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Surviving the thunderstorms here, Giles, and I trust all our listeners are well and enjoying the energy sector, which has been full of uh, heaps of announcements. And we've got another great interview this week. Look, we do. It's a double banger interview. Um, we've got two people from Transgrid. Um, we've, we'll get to the news later on um, in this podcast, and there's been a lot of it this week. Pretty much all of it centres on these net zero targets, and but not just looking at 2050, what needs to happen before then to get there, because if you're going to decarbonise the economy, there's a whole bits and pieces which will depend on a decarbonised grid, which you probably need to um, get um, decarbonised um, in about half the time. And it was fascinating to see Transgrid, which is the main transmission company in Australia, responsible for keeping the lights on pretty much in New South Wales, doing its own scenario planning and modeling this week it's sort of energy vision as it described it and it came up with some really interesting um really interesting uh, scenario modeling including 91 percent uh, renewables by 2030 which is even quicker than what aemo has contemplated in its integrated system plan anyway earlier on today we talked to um, two of the key executives from transgrip um, ever handley the head of strategy and jesse steinberg who's the head of future grid Jesse Steinfeld and uh, Eva Hanley, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you for having us, uh, Giles. I'm, a, I'm an avid listener, so it's really great to be here. Oh, thank you, Giles. Great. Thank you, David. Look, um, let's just get straight into the report. Now, I just will throw this first question to you, Jesse. We've had a lot of various scenario reports about the future grid come from, um, well, I guess the biggest one, the most important one comes from the Australian Energy Market Operator. Um, its first integrated system plan released um, about just over a year ago talked about a vision of we could get to more than 90% renewables by 2040. We now understand it's going to update this under its hydrogen superpower scenario, um, which is um, compatible with the 1.5 degree target, which we're all very concerned uh, about reaching. And that brings forward that sort of 90 to 100% renewables by to 2035. Your scenario modelling in its, um, its most ambitious modelling, which I guess is the one we're most interested in, brings that forward even further to 2030, 91% renewables possible by 2030. Did that surprise you? So the, the purpose of scenario planning is really to test the divergent future outcomes for the energy system and what it means for planning and what it means for how we set up and build the infrastructure for the future. So we don't plan for a single scenario. We plan for a range of scenarios. The deep decarbonisation scenario is the one that we really pushed all the levers to enable the energy system and the economy broadly to keep within a 1.5 degree temperature trajectory. And the modeling results really showed us that the electricity system is really underpinning the decarbonization of the entire economy. It's the energy system that gets us rapidly to close to 100% renewable energy. So as you said, 
91% by 2030 and 100% by 2050. And it's enabling, therefore, the electrification of the rest of the economy. So electrification of cars, industry, buildings, and that electrification is what supports decarbonization more broadly. So yes, it's a fast trajectory, but it's the lowest cost way to decarbonize the entire economy is to first rapidly transition to near 100% renewable energy and then support electrification more broadly. And when Transgrid's sitting there looking at that, you talked about you don't necessarily pick the scenarios, you kind of sort of deal with all the scenarios, but looking at what needs to be done, I mean, the, the climate science tells us that uh, we need to get to, we need to keep things kept at 1.5 degrees. We look at the weight of capital shifting around the world, that that's looking for the same sort of outcome. We see the billionaires in Australia, like Andrew Forrest, and Mike Cannon Brooks, sort of pushing the envelope of what can be achieved. We see COP26, we see the calls for um, the federal government to do more. We see the state governments getting into action surely that most ambitious one has to be the one that Transgrid has to lock into. So absolutely. So the mo- I think for me, the highlight of the modelling is that the transition to renewables is absolutely unstoppable. So yes, um, it is not just in the deep decarbonisation that's renewables that comes first. In five of the six scenarios, Um, renewable energy accounts for over 90% of electricity generation by 2050. So we're absolutely um, considering what needs to happen to enable that future. And in that future, it's actually net zero emissions economy-wide by 2050, sorry, 2035. That's the only scenario that keeps within a 1.5 degree temperature rise trajectory. So absolutely, we're very focused on what it means in the next 10 to 15 years to ensure there's a, a rapid transition to renewables. Evan, maybe I can just sort of get one question to you before um, David hops in. So from the strategy point of view then, if you're just seeing this sort of um, transition, I mean, I guess Jesse's just said that it's unstoppable. I guess the question might be, um, can then can it though be slowed? Um, how does Transgrid then take this information and um, as your head of strategy, what do you do with it? Well, I think, Giles, there's no shortage of views and opinions reported, as you would well know, about how Australia can transition to renewable energy. But I think the voice that's been missing is that of transmission, and that's a really important voice for a couple of reasons, and it really goes to the heart of your question. I mean, firstly, we're the owner and operator of the New South Wales energy system. So We are ultimately responsible uh, for ensuring there's secure, safe and reliable energy available for consumers. So because of this responsibility, you can imagine we spend a lot of time thinking about what needs to happen to ensure there's no disruption. And secondly, our role is really to get energy from where it's made to where it needs to be used. And because of that, we can be technology agnostic from a system perspective. We really don't have an agenda when it comes to coal versus renewables. So what we wanted to do with the energy vision was to figure out a blueprint for how the transition could occur from the perspective of the energy network. And what this tells us is that it can, and it can occur much more quickly than people may have realised And the problems um, that people talk about and hypothesise about around the grid, can it cope? Can the system cope? The answer is yes, it can. So, uh, Eva, uh, just before we started going on air, you started talking about one of your things you were trying to do at Transgrid is move towards more being from an infrastructure company to a services company. Did I hear that correctly? 
Yeah, I think um, you'd be familiar with traditional, uh, the traditional business of Transgrid has been what people refer to as poles and wires. Uh, but we are in a, a rapidly changing uh, energy system from a technology perspective, uh, from a consumer and, and prosumer perspective, data, um, artificial intelligence, and of course, electrification. So uh, what we spend a lot of time doing is thinking about what does that energy system of the future look like? Uh, and what it looks like, we think, is energy services. It's the service to consumers. Uh, and that's what we're looking at expanding into. And, and we are with batteries and electrification and designing energy systems that are focused on consumers rather than engineers. So your transmission as a service, is that the sort of concept? Yeah, and I mean, it's similar, of course, to what we saw in the, I suppose, the telecommunications space where um, gone are the days when, um, you know, you, you paid um, – amounts for what you for what you may or may not use and 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 now it's all about the service the service of of telecommunications and i think it's like that with utilities um consumers want a service um that's what they're concerned about um and that's why we're focusing so much on what sort of energy services there will be uh, and with the transition to renewables and the exit of coal our business will be much more deeply focused on system strength and system security Yes, right. So this is a question. I, I, I was going to ask why did Transgrid write the report because, uh, you know, the, the, I always say to the guys that come and work here at ITK, which is not very many of them, uh, you, you know, uh, don't ask. Uh, the first question to ask someone is not what are they saying, but why are they saying it? Uh, that's a somewhat investment banking cynical point of view. And I guess the main thing, one of the things that comes out of this report is that there's a need for more transmission. Uh, which probably won't surprise anyone. But I guess another thing that you could think about when you get right into the looking at some of the conclusions is that um, uh, uh, there's a role for distributed energy in a particular scenario for distributed energy. But in the end, it's even in the most ambitious scenario that you guys model, it's never going to be more than a quarter of the total supply Um I guess when we look at South Australia, you can see that it went island for a while and there's uh, some of the people who listen to this podcast think that you can do everything by locally uh, rather than having to have transmission uh, so much. I just what does the modelling actually, Jesse, I might ask you, actually say have to say about this whole general question? So where we started was um, analysing these six, six scenarios across... Um, to the to 2050, and what the modelling really suggested was that uh, to ensure the strong decarbonisation of our economy, it's really um, renewable energy followed by electrification, and that'll increase uh, electricity demand significantly. In in a clean energy superpower future, there's a six times growth in energy consumption, but even with electric vehicles, even with uh, electrified industry and buildings we're talking about almost a doubling of electricity consumption into the future. So what the modeling showed was that the transmission backbone is critical to underpin the transfer, the connection of renewables and the transfer of energy between states. And so there's a role, not just for large scale generation, but also small scale generation, but because of the growth in electricity consumption, the role of the grid and large scale generation is gonna remain critically important into the future. And I might just add add to that, 
at, at a sort of strategic and policy perspective, it's a really interesting question. And I think the way I look at it is that it's not one or the other. So for me, all of these um, elements need to to interact and interact at the, the, be- the their most capacity that they can. So we need decentralised energy. We need our rooftop solar. We need microgrids. Uh, we need all of those things. But it's just not enough um, in terms of an electrified future. And more importantly, um, with the interconnectors that that you and your listeners would be well aware we're, we're building at the moment or looking at building, that links all the different jurisdictions. And the the great thing about that is that that energy can be um, traded and moved to where it's needed. So that means lower cost, which is another reason why transmission is, is so important. Uh, Yes, transmission is uh, very important. I'll just ask one more question, and it gets to the difference between, I mean, who in the, uh, well, firstly, I I don't think the results of this study are that much different to actually, say, the ISP step change scenario, uh, broadly speaking. I mean, notwithstanding there's lots of different scenarios, the conclusions are, are, are sort of broadly similar. Would you agree with that? There's, I think I'm, I'm really interested in um, the ISP 2022. There's a lot of similarities between the energy vision scenarios and the ISP 2022 scenarios. So the ISP 2022 has a hydrogen superpower scenario, and that's most closely aligned to a combination of our deep decarbonisation and our clean energy superpower. It's a 1.5 degree trajectory, and it's a significant hydrogen growth. In terms of decarbonising, I'd say you're right, the step change scenario aligns pretty closely with somewhere between a, a deep decarbonisation and the current trends or a consumer power scenario. There's some similarities there, but I think the difference is particularly with regards to electrification. ISP 2020 had a growth in electrification, but not a significant growth. We've observed a really strong growth in electricity, underlying electricity consumption that's going to come as we electrify the vehicle fleet as we electrify buildings and industry. So if we get to 100% electrified vehicles from a road road transport point of view, we're talking about an extra 100 terawatt hours of energy a year. And that's that's half of what the NEM currently uses. So we're talking about a completely different energy system. Significantly more energy is going to be required to electrify. I think that aligns broadly with the step, but we're going even beyond that in terms of what's possible for the future. So I'll hand back to Giles, but I just wanted to finish on this uh, topic about modelling and scenarios and stuff because, you know, outside of this podcast, I'm not sure if anyone ever talks about the ISP anymore. Uh, 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 for instance, it, it never gets a mention in the Liberal Party or the La- Labor Party platform or anything like that when I read in the in the mainstream media about, you know, uh, hydrogen is a big thing or nuclear should be a big thing. None of it seems to actually look at what the dedicated actual modelling results actually show. I'm not sure what my question is exactly, but how do we sort of overcome the fact that the political landscape and discussion seems to be so different to the economic modelling? Because your modelling doesn't really require hydrogen. It shows how we could get growth from exports. or it doesn't require much. It certainly doesn't require nuclear 
we can do it all essentially with wind and solar and 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 renewable storage and get price outcomes that are broadly similar to today's prices. I wasn't sure whether they were real or nominal. So I guess my question is, what's the use of all of this work if in the political sphere no one takes any notice of it? Yeah, you're right. It's a really good reflection. And you know, I, I'm relatively new to the electricity sector myself, so I joined three years ago and and I hadn't heard of the ISP. Now, um, I think that's probably the case, as you point out, for, for many people in the public discourse, and that that's a huge shame. And I think the challenge for us um, that are uh, believers and really focused on delivering the ISP, it's a challenge for us to, to communicate it more effectively uh, because it, it's a really important, and as you say, it's data-driven. It's a data-driven analysis of what needs to happen. So... Uh, I agree. We need to make sure it, it's much more uh, talked about and known about. What I'd, I'd also like to add in that there's a lot of talk in the industry about the opportunity rather than just costs. So the opportunity to grow exports, the opportunity to create new jobs. And what our energy vision tries to do is provide the blueprint for the energy system. So the energy um, beyond zero emissions, sorry, recently published a report that said there's $333 billion worth of clean export opportunities. These opportunities are really becoming known. It's jobs in regional areas, jobs in coal communities. And what it is, is our energy vision is the blueprint for what the energy system needs to look like to enable these futures. Um, just I'd like to ask a couple of questions just about some of the details of the modelling. Um, interested to see here that in the um, 91% scenario, um, well, obviously, um, coal exits very quickly. You're talking about, or this modelling talks about, uh, 13 gigawatts more than currently anticipated leaving the grid by 2030. Um, and you make mention of the need for an orderly exit. Is, is this something that sort of concerns you or can it, can it be managed if there is this orderly exit? Absolutely. Our modelling is um, modelling shows it's absolutely able to happen. Um, this transition can happen if we plan for it appropriately. But what it really highlights is the, uh, the risk and the opportunity. So there's been a lot of um, you know, media around the Calide explosion. We, from an economic point of view, the modelling is clear. The early retirement of coal is going to be expected. We're going to see significantly early retirements. But the question is, when will it happen and what does it mean for the energy system? So our modelling looks at, well, you know, if with perfect foresight in a model, what would the smooth transition look like? But what happens if we have an early retirement, an unexpected retirement of coal? That's an example where we see renewable energy zones and transmission as really critical to provide insurance against early coal closures. In the energy vision, we look at um, one example, which is particularly around the New England res and the connection between northern New South Wales and Hunter Valley and the connection to within Sydney. It's really absolutely critical that these links are built um, with sufficient time so that we can be sure that if we have an early closure, the energy system's ready for that. You also talk about the need for sort of greater transmission. You also talk about the need for greater storage. I mean, storage is obviously going to play a critical role. At what point do they start competing against each other? Because, you know, there, there's, I mean, you, you need storage, you need transmission, but there might be a point where you start, people have to make decisions about, well, do we need an extra transmission line here or can we get away with, with greater storage? And, and how is that competition resolved? Because there's almost two different systems um, looking at how these things should be built and funded. 
Absolutely. So the modeling that was done by CSR and ClimateWorks is a least cost optimization. It looks at these questions. It looks at the trade-off of transmission versus storage. Um, and it's really fascinating to see, particularly as we approach 85%, 90% variable renewable energy, the need for storage becomes exponential. It's really in that period that we're starting to look at, well, what does it need? What does it look like for longer duration storage? In deep decarbonization, we do need peaking generation. We use gas hydrogen uh, peakers in this scenario to, to ensure we've got affordable prices. And so it is a question of storage uh, and the model does trade off the, the need for storage and the need for transmission. And it really sees that the role is there for both. So it's the transmission connecting the deep storage, battery donation, Snowy 2.0. It's also about local large scale storage as well as behind the meter storage. So there's a critical role for virtual power plants. Even within some of our scenarios, we're looking at vehicle to grid technology. And these um, technologies are gonna be really critical to complement not just large scale, but also um, that deep storage. So there's a role for all levels of storage and there's a role for transmission. I was going to ask about some EVs, actually EV to grid. I mean, exactly what do you see there as, you know, sort of possibilities and how that can actually be, um, can be managed? So another really interesting insight from the modelling was that the need for a really well-coordinated energy system is absolutely critical. So in some of our scenarios like prosumer power and deep decarbonisation, we've got a huge growth in rooftop solar. And what this brings us is big duck curves, a lot of generation from our roofs in the middle of the day. On the, on the same side as that argument, we've got electric vehicle growth. And so the question is, how can we optimize and coordinate the charging of these EVs so we manage that daytime um, production and we can charge when the energy price is lower? So vehicle to grid provides us one opportunity um, to, to provide um, and use that energy in the middle of the day, soak up the solar energy and provide that into the energy system at night. So it has a huge opportunity. In a study from Bloomberg in Germany, they said if all cars um, had vehicle to grid technology, it could provide three times the peak demand of Germany. So there is a large opportunity. It's just how we coordinate it and you know, what's the, the level of uptake of EVs with vehicle to grid technology. And so if I looked at a couple of the uh, other modelling bits and pieces, can I ask, did you, was it Plexos, what actual modelling platform did you use? So um, CSIRO and ClimateWorks use multiple models for this. It starts with um, OzTimes, which is a long-term model looking at kind of the least, least cost um, entry and exit of capacity, and that guides the coal retirement in the modelling. And then it steps down to a model called stable. So it's not Plexos, but it's a model that looks at an hourly optimization um, of transmission expansion, of generation placement, retirement. It looks at um, inputting in the rooftop solar, the electric vehicles, and it really captures the whole energy system from a least cost optimization. And, and meets the reliability standard, I presume. Absolutely. Every unit of energy is met. I think this is another thing that people who don't look at the ISP and what the work you guys have done here is that miss is that, you know, all this renewable energy and it actually still meets the reliability standard. So uh, that's that which is the test, but I'll just leave that out there. Then can I ask again another one of the questions, and it gets to this local versus versus regional type thing, is that a lot of the 
resources, renewable resources, are a long way from uh, current markets like North Queensland and uh, and Tasmania. Um, I guess let me ask firstly, when when do those regions start becoming big producers of or need more transmission in your scenarios? So it really depends on the scenario itself. Um, the, we're starting to see in the kind of 2030s, 2040s in deep decarbonisation when the electricity system really expands to capture energy from all regions of the NEM. By 2050 in deep decarbonisation, we require to go to Broken Hill to bring more power in. We require North Queensland um, and, and renewable energy zones everywhere across the NEM. It's fascinating to see in our clean energy superpower scenario that we need 420 gigawatts of generation, renewable generation by 2050. This requires in our modeling, we max out the capacity of the renewable energy zones in the ISP. We look at additional capacity within those zones. And then we even have to go further inland to inland Australia to capture more capacity. So between 2042 and 2048, we need about 55 gigawatts of power coming in from far Northwest New South Wales to bring power into the load centers, particularly Newcastle. Our modeling shows when it's optimizing hydrogen production and green steel production, also looking at port availabilities and workforce capacities, that Newcastle and North Queensland are gonna be the lowest cost locations to be producing green steel and hydrogen. And so that requires a huge amount of renewable capacity that needs to be brought in from further inland. And I, I, I could ask about offshore wind and where it fits in. And I want to point out to our listeners that the modelling outcomes always depend on the cost inputs and assumptions you make. And as anyone who's looked at COVID modelling knows, the world's best epidemiologists can be wrong within a month, uh, despite uh, everything. So modelling always needs to be treated with a lot of caution. And I say that as a modeller. But I wondered if you could just explain to our listeners, uh, some of whom might get often hit by the fact that it's going to cost an absolute bomb in investment dollars and therefore electricity prices are going to go up, that in fact it's lower fuel prices in fact or costs more than offset that so that you end up with a relatively stable uh, electricity price despite all the investment. Have I got that broadly correct? Absolutely. So what our modelling is showing across the range of scenarios is that um, the price of electricity is expected to remain relatively low in the coming five to 10 years. As we retire coal assets, um, we've got a growth in renewable energy enters the system. With that, we need more transmission, more storage, and more system security services. So on one hand, that causes um, the price of electricity to rise. And on the other hand, we've got falling renewable energy costs. So solar has dropped 87% since 2009. It's forecast to drop another 70% to 2050. So what our modeling is showing is that prices are likely to remain below where they were in 2019 for the entire 30-year period. Fascinatingly, looking at this clean energy superpower scenario, which is a Sorry, future... sorry, just to interrupt. Is that nominal or real, Donald? That's real. That's real, thank you. So when we, when we look at this clean energy superpower scenario, we actually, in the later years, get the lowest cost of electricity. And that's because... When you've got a huge um, electricity system, in this case, we've expanded the NEM six times in its amount of energy requirements. We've got a significant growth in flexible hydrogen electrolyzers, and these can mimic and, and match the production of electricity from renewable energy. And so they need three times less storage than a deep decarbonization scenario when normalized for the unit of energy. 
So what it means is that if we're integrating hydrogen electrolyzers into the NEM, we're leading to lower costs for everyone. And, uh, well, uh, and just uh, Giles was probably going to ask, I'll steal a question from him. What's the role of gas across the range of scenarios? Yeah, really good question. So the modelling shows that as we increase the variable renewable energy share from about 60%, the amount of gas that we require slowly increases in scenarios where there isn't a strong uh, level of decarbonisation or requirements to meet carbon trajectories. But that only gets to about 6% of total generation in 2050. The modelling suggests that the existing gas capacity that we have in the system now is sufficient to get us through to 2050. In a deep decarbonisation scenario where we have the requirement to hit a 1.5 degree temperature trajectory, we have gas leaving the system in 2035. And as I said before, the need for peaking generation is still there. And that's why we've introduced hydrogen peaking into the model. In a clean energy superpower future, where we have very flexible hydrogen electrolyzers, the role for gas drops to near zero, and we've got uh, almost no gas in the energy system left. So overall, there's a small role for gas to play, and a particularly important role for gas to play, um, but it's a small role in the overall um, energy consumption terms. But if we're looking to, to ensure a deep decarbonisation of the economy, gas is gone by 2035. And what did Angus Taylor's people tell, say, uh, say when, you, when you presented them with these, these results? So, Eva? <laughs> That's a cheeky question. Um, look, we, we just need to plan the scenarios because, I mean, as, as Jesse's pointed out and you rightly pointed out, um, the scenario is a scenario and what we're trying to do is predict what may happen. Now, as the future evolves and policymakers will make policy decisions, um, we will be prepared. Uh, so we're hopeful for a deep decarbonisation and, and um, scenario, uh, but we will be prepared as the system operator and planner for, for any scenario that eventuates. I've got one final question. Um, and this is about the, sort of the, the hydrogen. And um, Jesse, you mentioned the fact that um, so much of this is going to be um, you know, 40 or 50 gigawatts or whatever it is. It could even be more than that. It's going to be far, far away. It's going to be deep inland. They're going to have to be connected um, either to a point of delivery for hydrogen electrolyzers on a massive scale or possibly to the rest of the grid. New South Wales government, for instance, is actually still providing incentive for these things to be connected to the grid. Um when you're talking about new long-distance transmission lines to these far-flung regions um, and these new wind and solar resources, are we talking about a different way of thinking about transmission? I mean, are we going to be looking at HVDC? Are we looking at underground? Do we actually have to think about it in that way? Or is it just sort of more poles and wires just sort of going off into the distance? So strategically, we are looking at all those options because um, I think something Australia doesn't do too well is um, – we think every new challenge we've got in front of us, no one else has solved before. So we, we like to spend a bit of time looking at other jurisdictions internationally and certainly the undergrounding, um, as you mentioned, and the HDVC is very is very interesting and, and we're looking at what role that might play um, from a strategic perspective. Um, Jesse, did you have any I, further I do, insights? I just agree with you. When we're getting to this level of scale, we, we can't be running 10... Um, standard transmission lines um, from this remote parts of New South Wales. It is about optimising scale and efficiency, and that's where we're looking at innovations. And, and as Eva said, 
It's about looking around the world. You know, China has ultra high voltage AC. We could do high voltage DC. There's a lot of technologies that we need to explore if we're going to connect 420 gigs into the power system. And Ava, you mentioned before about transmission as a service or at least Transgrid as a service provider, not quite the same thing. Um, I just wonder, you know, most of the scenarios here, unsurprisingly, given the authors, uh, seem to lead to quite a lot of new transmission in New South Wales um, uh, and probably other states. I'm just wondering about how you the argument about the funding model, whether it should be the generator that pays or the consumer that pays, whether it should be regulated or, you know, built into the cost of the renewable energy zone. What do you, uh, how has Transgrid seen that debate? What what do you think would be the model that would be the, uh, get it done the quickest and most efficiently? I think there's probably a role for a number of models, considering how much investment just needs to be made. Uh, and one of the points that you raised earlier around competition between technology solutions, that's something that I think um, the models, whatever regulatory and funding models are in place and how they evolve, needs to make sure we focus on. Because what we don't want is it to just be a first mover advantage. So whoever can get in and build something um regardless of whether it's the least cost solution or regardless of whether it's the cleanest solution. Uh, that's what we don't want. So I think a, a regulatory system that ensures there's a very clear uh, role for a centralised planner um, to use data and to use modelling to make sure that different options are compared against each other. Uh, and that's something increasingly uh, we're doing at Transgrid with, with our RITTs. So um, you know, previously uh, storage was considered uh, much riskier than it is now, um, whereas increasingly with the, uh, with the pilots, like the pilot we've done in Western Sydney uh, and the improvements in technology, um, battery does need to be uh, compared as a true viable option against transmission build. Uh, and so for me it's about having the system that enables ultimately the least cost solution to be built because that's what the consumer wants and needs. Well, look, fantastic. Thank you very much to both of you for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and uh, we look forward to um, more scenario planning, I'm, I'm sure, in, in, in coming months and coming years. But, uh, <laughs> well, I, I look forward to getting uh, out of the planning stage, Giles, and getting on with the actual action and whether that's the New South Wales roadmap or, or, or more transmission uh, or more renewable energy or more, uh, you know, clean storage. Let's get it done. And uh, it's almost time to stop talking. Well, we can't do that because we've got a podcast to do, David, but thank you very much anyway. Thanks very much, uh, Jesse. Thank you very much, Eva. Thank you <laughs> so much for having us. Thanks very much. And that was uh, Eva Hanley, uh, the Head of Strategy at Transgrid, and uh, Jesse Steinberg, the uh, Head of Future Grid at Transgrid. Um, David, fascinating interview, actually. Um, these guys have thought about this quite um, quite deeply. Yes, and they look. They had some great. Uh, they chose some great partners. The Brattle Group, I think, has done fantastic work in the in the United States on a lot of estimate things to do with electricity, uh, um, and the CSIRO and the Climate Council do a lot. The Climate Works do a lot of great work here. Uh, I think I didn't quite make clear myself that I, I actually support what they say about there's limits to how far you can go with behind the meter and how much energy it can actually supply. It's a lot more than we thought years ago, but 25% would be a lot. 
And the other great point that they made, which we didn't spend enough time exploring and that you've written about in, uh, at Renew Economy, is this electrification. Uh, they are talking, I think, about the key um, industri industry sectors, uh, electrifying them and, and, you know, to increase the use of electricity. But we also seen some great work on the Electrify Australia uh, type thing from uh, Saul Griffith, was it, uh, earlier on in the yeah, look, there's been all sorts of things um, happening. Um, Saul Griffith with Rewiring Australia, he established a Rewiring America, and that's the whole idea, just about electrify everything and um, turn the power to renewables or at least clean energy, um, because in the US at least that um, in, in includes keeping the existing nuclear power stations. Um, but... Um, one of the interesting things this week, I mean, apart from the sort of um, sort of stretch targets for renewables, the talk of net zero, how quickly the grids have to decarbonise. And I should actually point out that the UK, um, rather than this sort of gas-led recovery that's been touted in Australia, is actually um, legislating or sort of um, set a policy to actually get rid of gas by 2035. And it's interesting to hear Transgrid's take on that, that um, we certainly won't be needing any new gas and uh, most of it will be gone in a 91% renewable scenario by 2030. The US has also pretty much agreed to, um, well, Biden has set down the uh, task of 2035 zero carbon grid, and so, that's pretty so, much the same in the EU. So, Giles, rather than running through all the news, of which there's a huge amount, let me just ask you this. Of all, of all the news announcements in the last couple of weeks, which do you is for you is the most significant, important, interesting or useful? Pretty hard to decide. I was sort of, I was sort of picking and choosing, David, between um, Andrew Forrest and his series of zero carbon announcements and the hydrogen announcements in Queensland, in Western Australia, and in New South Wales. Um, mainly because it's a very rich and influential person and he's just absolutely going for it. Although um, a lot of it is talk and plans for projects at the moment, but he's kind of changing the narrative and he's taking on the incumbents and the naysayers and the coalition. He had a really good go at the Nationals this week about them being chicken littles and basically fear-mongering. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I, I love yeah. that. He's changing the political narrative, isn't he? Well, that's important. And that's the thing that's holding us back. I mean, if you everyone, you talk to anyone out there, the technologies are moving us forward, the business people are moving, the investors, the capital is moving. What's holding us back at the moment is the sort of gridlock within the federal coalition and the refusal by the federal government to set any meaningful policy, which could actually set some sort of signal. You're not going to get the federal government suddenly building stuff and pushing things forward. If at least they set a policy and people go, okay, that's where we're aiming for, we can get oh, there. Charles, and I think you're, you're, you're way overstating what they're planning. Uh, the way I'm reading it uh, is now they're just going to have a technology roadmap and, and some desires, you know, and wishes. Haven't they picked up the Daily Telegraph this week? Climate change is real. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness me, David, they've got to keep up with the news. Um, and apart from that, um, the other major news of the week, of course, was the announcement that's just come on through my desk, just comes in the email that the Mini Moak is going fully electric from early next year. So I think that's a major step forward as well. David, what was your big news of the week? Well, I think for me, the most important thing that's going to impact electricity in Australia over the next few years uh, was the Rio uh, Tinto announcement that they're in cooperation with the Queensland government looking seriously at what they can do uh, with the Boyne Island smelter up there in, in, in Queensland to electrify it. That has big implications for North Queensland, you know, in the next few years. And 
Uh, also, I think big implications for the Gladstone power station. And if that power station was closed, it would free up a lot of transmission that it was it's otherwise using that could then be replaced by some of the fantastic resource that we've got for wind and solar up there, which when you couple it with hydrogen becomes, uh, if, if hydrogen becomes a thing, and, you know, this, uh, <laughs> you know I, could, I could go on holiday for every study I've read about hydrogen and how it's wonderful uh, this year without actually seeing too much of the bloody stuff. Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, it, can, it could be a, a big new future for central, central and north Queensland. Well, exactly. And um, it's interesting that BHP also announced today a major offtake agreement with Ibidrola, um, the former Infigen um, Energy, uh, well, which now owns Infigen Energy in, in Australia. It's just about completed the country's biggest hybrid wind and solar plants at Port Augusta, right next to the former coal-fired power station that was there, and Olympic Dam, which is pretty much the biggest mining operation in in Australia, and I'm probably wrong about that, but it's a pretty big one anyway. Um, has about 200 megawatts of average load. Um, it's only a big contract for that. So 50% of the electricity supply will come from renewables, lower its cost, lower its emissions. And isn't it interesting, David, that you're now seeing um, Rio Tinto with its major iron ore and also copper. You've got BHP iron ore, copper. You've got Fortescue um, iron ore, all leading this shift to renewables. Well, I, you know, and I think we, we spoke last week to Jeff Dimery and Alinta's got a big part to play in this building this northwest grid. Unfortunately, there was so much to talk about with Jeff, we didn't probably spend enough time talking about that then and we're not going to spend it now. But, you know, the idea that all these iron ore mines and the associated ports and, and the other mining in, in northwest Australia could not only be powered by renewables but be... Uh, have a whole grid of them connected and, and, and you know, with uh, grid-forming inverters and batteries kind of running the system most of the time. I mean, that is the future for the whole of Australia, and, 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 and that is a, a very wonderful thing. One of these days we're going to have to, re, uh, in the near distant future, we're going to have to revisit hydrogen. There's so many announcements about it, and, you know, <laughs> if we thought there was hype before, now it's uh, kind of really taking <laughs> off. But th this is this... Um, you know, and we get all this uh, stuff from the federal government about putting money into carbon capture and storage and hydrogen, and isn't that wonderful? Even the New South Wales government's getting in on the act, uh, uh, still with no clear vision to produce hydrogen at anything like the uh, cost of current uh, gas, for instance, uh, even by 2030. But meanwhile, the New South Wales government, I continue to emphasise what a good job Matt Keane is doing, and, and not just Matt Keane, but the whole department here in New South Wales you know, I was just looking uh, at this uh, plan and we're going to see a lot more of the actual, um, uh, uh, you know, contracts and announcements and real action next year. But this year, all the planning's taking place. I'm looking at this 12 papers I can see in front of me uh, that have been uh, part of a series being released each year, this year. And each of them is like having consultation and forums and everyone getting a chance to say, I mean, this is proper policy development in a way that I think maximises the chances for success in the medium and long term uh, and based around sound principles from beginning to end and just involving the community. And, you know, it's just such a shame that the federal government can't work out that that's in Australia's best interest. But I don't want to spend more time on the politics and we're already a long way into this uh, podcast.
Yeah, I'd just like to make a note actually about how quickly it has actually changed in New South Wales, particularly since the arrival of Matt Keane, who obviously sort of senses the political tea leaves and this and, and, and has a clear village and a clear understanding of, of what can be done and what should be done. And I was actually just talking to a former employee of the New South Wales government and just, just mentioned just a few years ago that um, um, any time that they were sort of to go out and talk publicly and, and, and um, even sort of talk about climate change was basically told, no, you can't do that. Um, that's not something that we talk about in these parts and um, how things have changed. David, I think that is probably a bit of a wrap for today. Um, I was shattered to learn, and I'm hoping I'm not breaching any privacy here, that um, you missed out on the Hyundai Electric Ionic 5 this week, beaten to the punch by um, 170 people quicker than you on the keyboard. Um, what's plan B? Uh, well, you know, I just want to comment. Uh, it's a bit of a shambles, really, for Hyundai. They've known for months and that they've had like 10,000 expressions of interest and the website still crashed within the first 10 minutes, you know. <laughs> I mean, how hopeless. Probably I'm glad I haven't got the bloody car, you know. I shouldn't say that. But, you know. uh, uh, and plan B is to wait for the Kia now, I think, uh, which I've probably got a better body shape and a bit more the spec uh, that I'm looking for. But anyway, okay. we'll, 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 you know, and this is the point about the electric vehicles. I mean, they can sell out like 400 cars uh, in total in, in like three hours, in three hours in Australia with no policy, no, no other than New South Wales policy. Uh, in China, uh, electric vehicle sales, I think, were 17% of the market in the last month. That was just announced today. And that's roughly what they're running at in Europe. Uh, yet again, federal government, hey, where are you? Where are you? Uh, and look, at, for Japan, it matters a lot. Japan's also very slow to decarbonise. I know we're getting back, uh, going over time here, uh, but it's going to kill their electric, ve their vehicle industry is just going to lose market share. And they're, they're scared in Japan about this and trying to, to, to do it all on hydrogen. They, they need to focus on what else they can do. But that's, that too is another story. It is another story. Look, um, thank you very much, David. Um, thank you to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Um, thanks to um, the Transgrid people, um, Eva Hanley and Jesse Steinberg. It was a great conversation. Thanks to everybody out there listening to this podcast. Um, 52,000 downloads in the month of September, which is just fantastic and quite gratifying. Um, over a million and a half um, in the life of this podcast, which is um, even more satisfying. Keep listening, keep giving us your feedback, and um, keep rolling out and suggesting some great guests. Thank you, and Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.